Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking to Natalie Obiko Pearson. Natalie is a journalist and bureau chief at Bloomberg Vancouver. Natalie's work came to the attention of lots of international educators this year after writing an article entitled, Elite International Schools Have a Racism Problem. This provoked a lot of discussion online as well as amongst many of my colleagues and friends in the industry. Having spent time at an international school herself, Natalie's incredibly well-informed and wide-ranging investigation confirmed a number of growing doubts that people within international schooling may have had, as well as introducing a variety of other issues within the system that were yet to come to light. We discussed Natalie's observation that the more the elite the school, the less diverse the staff, and whether it can be said of any global hubs international schools, whether the efforts of the International Baccalaureate or other curricula designed to produce world citizens are undermined by a lack of cultural diversity in recruitment, the role of parental expectations and how they influence or validate decisions made by school management teams, what the appeal of working in an international school is for those who would be deemed a local hire, Natalie's opinion on what would be a truly fair or meaningful way to approach recruitment for schools in the future, and finally, whether staff professional development can ever deliver on the promise of ensuring a more diverse approach to international schooling. For anyone who is yet to read Natalie's article, it is an essential piece of journalism for those of, a, for those of us who have made a life abroad or plan to in the future. It explores the role of parents, students, teachers and school management in terms of the questions we should be asking of ourselves and the sense of self-identity we're guiding our young people towards. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Um, okay, Natalie, so your article um, initially introduces agencies that advertise and connect teachers with schools in a shamelessly prejudiced manner. Um, the countries that are benefiting that you mentioned are the likes of China or Saudi Arabia, which are obviously like major nations, but perhaps um, the nations that are, I don't know, like not young, but relatively nascent in their uh, recruitment drive to try and get like um, uh, teachers to come over and teach when compared with some of the some of the more like well different countries or, or cities that have got like a colonial sort of past but um, in your opinion do you think your observation that the more elite the school the less diverse the staff can be said of any global hubs international schools I think so. And I think that's fair. And I'll explain why. Uh, the reason why these schools in China and Saudi Arabia that I provided examples of do this is because they're aspiring towards something. Um, and what the what is sort of set up as the pinnacle in this industry are these very elite schools where you have faculty and administration that are overwhelmingly white. And so, um, you know, one that was actually something that did concern me when I published. I was afraid that people will read it and be like, oh, but those are just bad actors mm -hmm. in China and Saudi Arabia. Uh, I, I, 
I don't, they are not isolated examples. They are just the more brazen examples in an industry where this is systemic. And you can say that because uh, take a look at international schools the world over, whether they're in Europe or in Africa or in Latin America or you name it, the outcome is the same. So the system in place may not be as brazen. It might be hidden. It may be conscious or it may be to some degree unconscious. But the end result is that all of these schools, almost every international school, is dominated by a white leadership and a white faculty. Um, and so I would just I would say, you know, um, the, this is this is systemic. Um, and the other examples that um, that I can provide with you that tell me that this is not a question of a couple bad apples, but that something that is happening across the sector is that you know. I've heard of other examples where, you know, the old, I, I'm not going to name any names, but old time recruiters from the very, very established agencies, you know, simply sorted resumes informally for years. And there was a tendency for the white candidates to sort of make it through the process and the non-white candidates to get stuck. Um, and an administrator that arrived another, at another school was told that any resumes of non-white candidates that come in immediately go into this no, no pile. So this is ha something that's happening across the board, and uh, that is why the industry looks the way that it does. Mm, um, I, I mean, I can only speak from my experience in Hong Kong, um, but I've definitely been privy to conversations where, um, and not even with management that are necessarily um, uh, white in, in kind of their ethnic or cultural identity. But I've been privy to conversations where, and, you know, people do skirt around the subject, but um, yeah, there, there's certainly a kind of perception that there is a desirable hire and a less desirable hire when you're in this kind of free market economy of, of education. Um, do you think like most schools nowadays, well, I don't know about statistics, but it seems a lot like um, the, the international baccalaureate is the sort of the, the darling curriculum of most international schools, I would imagine, around the world. Do you think the efforts of the IB or other curricula designed to produce world citizens, as they would put it, are undermined by a lack of um, cultural diversity in the staff body? Absolutely. There's no question. It doesn't matter how enlightened your curriculum is, how enlightened your method of teaching or your approaches, there is just no diversity without representation. Mm -hmm. And time and again, study after study shows the power of role models for children. If children are not seeing people like themselves in positions of authority among those who are meant to be educating them for the world, it is an education that is falling short and I would argue is even doing damage. Um, there's a black educator and activist in the US uh, named Dina Simmons, and I think she has a wonderful way of explaining this. She says, in order to be successful, every child deserves an education that guarantees the safety to learn in the comfort of one's own skin. And I think that's what international schools are not providing to a very large portion of their student bodies right now. Uh, because whether it is, you know, whether it, whether the children or the students are conscious of it 
or it's happening sort of unconsciously and it takes them decades to sort of come to grips with it the way it did for me, mm. you know, there is a message that is coming across that the positions of authority are of a certain demographic and that you do not belong if you do not look like them or you spend years trying to pass like them. Um, and so I think that's what we sort of talk about, the social alchemy that goes on in these schools where you get, uh, you, you sort of mold children to want to come out acting, speaking, and looking like a certain demographic. And that is a direct reflection of the people teaching in it um, and the people who have positions of authority in it. So I, I think it is a real cop-out when IB, uh, when the International Baccalaureate and others say that, you know, look, we're just curriculum providers and we don't operate or control the schools, so we have no ability to address the systemic inequities in this industry today. Uh, you know, I would say to them, the own, like, systemic uh, systemic problems are by definition incredibly difficult to tackle and nobody is saying it's easy or that any one organization can do it. But you can't just stand by and say it's not my problem, which is essentially what they're doing right now. The onus is them to, one, diversify their own ranks, because if the IB had a lot more of a diverse representation within its own institution, I think that would send an incredible message out to the industry and also, I'm sure, very much improve their own curriculum. And two, um, you know, it's the onus is also on them to push the industry to fix these inequities. Um, otherwise, you're simply profiting from that injustice. Mm, I think that's a really fair point. There's and and from like a school point of view, the accreditation to get that um, label or, or, or title as like a an IB World School schools will bend over backwards to make sure they get that because it is such an important. Um, I don't want to sound kind of cynical, but it is it is a vital selling point to a lot of parents who move to a new city. They want to kind of uh, be led to believe that their, their their child will become a world citizen or a beneficiary of what the IB has to offer. And yeah, I've I've, I've been in schools where accreditations happened, and it it is it's not a stressful thing, but it, it takes up a lot of time and stuff like that. And I'm not sure how realistic it would be to say that. Um, you know, we want to see representation within the staff body, but it would definitely prompt the discussion. It would definitely kind of um, make those kind of conversations or, or um, those, yeah, considerations happen within like a school management um, level. So I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it in terms of um, the, 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 the kind of yeah, tendency to cop out when it comes to that side of um, um, their influence on schools. Um, within the article that you mentioned a moment ago as well, I think um, you talk about the parents and parental wishes and also thinking about that kind of idea of like free market um, capitalism or kind of um, the education sort of system in like a lot of countries relies on, you know, competitive uh, reputations between schools and that kind of thing but you, you highlight parental wishes and they're perhaps used by schools to validate a lack of balance when it comes to cultural or ethnic diversity can this ever be expected to change in your opinion and, and if it were to like how would that ever happen I think it can. And I think the best way to get that point across is by reminding parents why it is that they are paying for the kids to attend these expensive schools. And the mandate of these schools is to prepare them for the world. And the world does not look like this industry. I mean, we can argue that, yes, there is still uh, systemic inequities and all sorts of uh, 
parts of our society. But the universities and the employers that these parents covet for their children are starting to take this issue increasingly seriously. And I have heard time and again from recent alumni coming out of the international school industry, going off to university in the UK, in the US, and so forth, and saying we were not prepared for the conversation that's happening right now. Like we don't, didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it. We didn't have the framework in which to think about it. And that is a serious failing in the industry. Um, and so parents need to understand that their kids are going to be dealing with this issue. And when they go to university, all their teachers and professors are not going to be uh, you know, <laughs> so do predominantly of a certain demographic as they are in the international school sector. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think it can change. I think if you sort of lay it out to parents this way, then there is scope for them to come around. And, and I will tell you, I mean, I asked people this, I was like, you know, when you actually like the few people, administrators, teachers that would have these conversations with parents, they, they'd almost always surprisingly, um, you know, surprised positively by the reaction of parents. Like when it's laid out like this, the parents get it. Um, and I think what's happening is schools are sort of, um, they, they, they're before they even try, they're sort of like backing down saying, oh, this is a really delicate thing. Um, I would also, <laughs> I would also argue that the biggest problem is not going to be the pool of parents where you have to explain why these issues matter. I think in those cases, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's something that you need to, it, it's probably cultural differences, different societies at different stages of this sort of evolution that, um, you know, you need to sort of catch the parents up on what is on this this conversation that's happening in, say, the U.S. and in the U.K., but I think where you're going to have a harder, uh, a, a, a trickier challenge are the type of parents who know perfectly well why these conversations are happening and yet will still land up in a foreign country and want to walk into a school uh, at, where and put their children in an institution where they feel like it, it, it looks more like what they are expecting for a private education for their children. And so that's when I, you know, I refer you to like the parents who will, you know, go up in arms and say, uh, I, I think I cited this in the, in my story, you know, one teacher who said parents came in and were like outright before they had even seen how the teacher was uh, doing in the classroom. were just appalled that it was an Indian teacher teaching English or a Filipina teacher uh, teaching whatever subject or, uh, you know, the Vietnamese teacher who actually turned out to be a Canadian citizen. It's this sort of like knee-jerk reaction that you get in uh, a, a parents who, um, you know, who, uh, who would profess to, <laughs> to probably being liberal and pro progressive and worldly in their daily lives, but probably have some deep-seated biases that they have not even acknowledged yet. So it's, it's, I mean, I don't, it's, it's hard. Like I think educators today have a job where they are having to educate students in the classroom, educate the parents, educate their peers, and, and in many cases, educate themselves. Mm, yeah, I would, I would completely agree with that. It kind of, it reminds me of the fact that um, we did have a case in Hong Kong a couple of years ago with the, uh, it was a big foundation, the English Schools Foundation, and it, it wasn't the parents that came to the fore with regard to 
a lack of kind of cultural or um, ethnic kind of sensitivity. It was the students themselves. And you don't know, maybe maybe the, the kind of the parents had like uh, empowered them to do that. You'd certainly like to think so. Or maybe it was the teachers that empowered them. But it, it does kind of give me like some degree of, um, I don't know, positivity or um, enthusiasm about the fact that maybe, you know, it, hopefully, you know, it could possibly be with regard to Hong Kong, at least a generational thing where perhaps the students who have been exposed to these kind of ideas nowadays may go on to have children of their own and help hopefully kind of like um, change the system in, in, in the long term. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of know what you said with regard to people who do profess to be kind of liberal people or kind of worldly people. But as soon as they're handing over what can be quite large sums of money for the children's education, if, if, if things don't look and sound a certain way, yeah, you, you wonder whether some of those biases and prejudices um, come to um, the surface, yeah. Um, how, how, coming back to parents, how conscious do you think they are of your observation in the article that English language education doesn't provide the finest education, but um, does excel in um, securing access to global business, international politics, scientific research, top academic journals and, and, and these kind of things, so like university and, and beyond. Um, do you think parents are aware of that or, or not? I don't think so because mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of it until I started sort of thinking through this whole process and I am a product of that system. Um, you know, I... Uh, it, it, as much as like it, immediately, I knew that discriminatory discriminatory hiring practices are shocking and unacceptable in any situation. But sort of the deeper seated biases that I, it took me a long time to get my head around were some of these assumptions that uh, English language Western education is the best that you can get in the world. Uh, I think I held that bias. Or up until just, you know, a couple months ago when I sort of finally worked my way through the story, um, you know, at the end of the day, I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I am still glad that my parents put me in, in a Western school in Japan because that's what made me a critical thinker. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we've always been told is that Western education has long been associated with critical thinking and, for example, Asian education with rote memorization. And you know, the, the data just doesn't support that. The OECD program for international student assessment, which assesses 15-year-olds in, you know, reading maths and science across the world, and it's the most rigorous study of its kind. And it doesn't just show that, you know, there is a whole bunch of um, Asian, uh, uh, you know, education systems that that just perform better by the numbers, but the, the assessment was actually designed by hundreds of worldwide educators and scientists precisely to assess not just what a child knows, but how to apply it. So that is the definition of like critical thinking. Um, and again, like it was a lot of students in non-Western, non-English speaking countries that were performing extremely well on that. Um, but I think, you know, that um, what we take is like the end result, the st- students who have been exposed to 
a westernized education and end up picking up English fluently just have that many more opportunities open to them later in life. So of course they will tend to become more successful. Uh, the gates have been open for them, but I think we sort of, um, you know, we take that end result of look at all these kids that have like ended up like extremely successful. Therefore, this like this education system must be the best in the world. No, that's not true. It's it's just a reflection of the inherent power structures in our world that devote a lot of resources that, you know, where a lot of extremely wealthy institutions in the West have are sort of a magnet for the for 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 people around the world. They are the most resource. They are the best known. So it's sort of like this cycle that perpetuates. But but you know it it yeah. I mean I think you just have to constantly be testing those biases. Yeah, and there's I think there's I think there's a kind of an attitude amongst uh, some parents that I've kind of met in the past in regard to like you know the dream is to go to. Cambridge or Oxford or, or one of the Ivy League universities but as a kind of like anecdotal bit of evidence to kind of back up what you're saying I suppose is the fact that often we get these students who spend a lot of money to fly over to the UK uh, or at least before the, the pandemic and they, they they would fail the interview and they would cite um, the fact that um, the interviewer would say that you know they were incredibly academically um you know, um, uh, kind of, um, they, they would have uh, amazing academic results, but not necessarily the the conversation skills or the, I don't want to use the word personality because that seems incredibly harsh, but I think a lot of parents are paying for what they see as like the full package with regards to like Western education or Western kind of minded international schools. And from an anecdotal point of view, I, I would agree that in terms of the evidence that there just doesn't seem to be that guarantee, like you are going to meet influential people or people who will go on to be influential or members of influential families, potentially. I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of kind of um, globally well-known names who went to schools in the likes of Switzerland and, and beyond, but yeah, from, from my perspective, from a teacher's perspective, it's absolutely no guarantee that you're going to get to um, one of those elite universities if that is your aim. But there are a number of kind of like um, slightly less auspicious universities that will be more than happy to take those students. And I guess that kind of maintains this um, veneer that um, students are being prepared to go to some of the best universities in the world because they are still some of the best but not always the very best, um, in, in my opinion. Um, you, you mentioned as well in the article, I thought this was really interesting with regard to um, what, what we might call like local hires. So um, if there was an international school in Japan and they hire like a, a Japanese um, a person, or if we're in Hong Kong and we, we hire someone who's, um, you know, identifies as being from Hong Kong, you talked about the, the disparity between those people being hired compared with someone who's come from the US or Canada or the UK and the differences in the package and the salary and stuff. Um, and I, I've got friends who, who, who would fall into that category, but from your perspective, what do you think is the appeal of working in international schools for those uh, who would be deemed a local hire? Are they operating with the same misplaced respect for institutions that are born out of colonialism, do you think? Um, so I think that one's really tricky. I mean, I would never want to blame the person who agrees to take a local hire position in a school. Uh, I think it's perfectly understandable. The 
you know, the positions are often often far better paid than what they would earn in a local school, and it opens the path up to much more opportunities. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's just the reality. All of us, I think, would jump for a job track that takes us to better paid, uh, more prestigious jobs. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the one thing I would uh, love to remind people who are in those local higher categories is uh, it, it's an outdated colonial system, I think. And please remember that it's not a reflection of your value as an educator. You know, it, it's it's going to take time to, I think, dismantle some of these hierarchies. Uh, and in the meantime, I would never want them to think that they actually don't deserve the same pay and the same perks and the same opportunities as any other teacher that holds a Western passport and, you know, came out of some, uh, you know, uh, Western country. Um, it's, uh, yeah. I, I, and so I think, um, you know, I did talk. It, it, it's funny, you know, I think I, in my story, I talk about how I had a very good friend that I grew up with in international school who uh, was rejected by an international school in Bangkok because, you know, quote, unquote, she wasn't international enough. uh, But we know it was because of the passport she held and, and, and her color. And when she first told me that story a few years ago, we both sort of like, were like, oh, that's, that's terrible. But it was also it, it 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 was so normalized to us, like it made so much sense why that would happen. That to be honest, I don't think either of us were particularly outraged. We were just like, yeah, that's the way it is. And I think it was in the course of reporting it, I was like, that's how that that's the danger of it. Like when you start to think that this is just normal and that that's just the way the industry works, that's where you have to sort of catch yourself and be like, this is this is act this is so not normal and we need to put a stop to this yeah yeah completely and again it's it, that one's quite close to home for me with regard to um i've obviously never seen the contract of another teacher but if, if you grow close enough to someone you become friends and things like that you, you know over a, over a beer or a glass of wine they might kind of confide in you the fact that this is happening and yeah it it that that's probably the scariest thing actually as you just mentioned the fact that it's you can have that conversation about oh isn't it terrible and 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 that's awful and stuff like that but i wonder whether kind of that's yeah that it's it's not enough of a a reaction almost it's 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 scary that it's become that normalized that you talk about it in relatively sedate terms in in that way um um, moving on to the uh, ways in which schools perhaps are changing or moving away from these kind of uh, more nefarious practices. Um, there's there's um, the reduction of like uh, requesting photos. Um, there's been a reduction, as you mentioned in the article, of like inhibitive experience expectations, like you must have taught the IB to teach here, et cetera, and also asking for like native um, um, or using native labels. Um, all, of those, all of those things are being kind of removed from what is asked of new applicants at certain international schools. But what would it, what would be a truly fair or meaningful way to approach recruitment for, for these schools in the future, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's um I I understand that um 
this is not something that you can change wholesale overnight. Uh, you know, it would be unfair to say we're going to lay off our entire faculty and, uh, you know, restaff it with a much more diverse mix. I mean, there are plenty of excellent white educators who should remain in their jobs. Um, but, um, I mean, the native English, dropping the native English speaker requirement, the loss of uh, getting rid of the photos, those were just sort of like no brainers, I think. Um, I think what ISD, the International School of Dakar did, the example I gave my story, that one, that one to me seemed like an incredibly effective uh, approach by dropping the IB requirement. I think, you know, 40 some percent of their incoming faculty the next year were suddenly teachers of color just by dropping that one requirement. Um, so I, I, you know, I do think that is one way of that's one thing schools that, you know, sort of uh, promote the IB curriculum should consider. Um, I think it's very much about sort of opening the pipeline so that more talent of color can come into the industry. And I think that means going outside of the traditional jurisdictions where you look for teachers and looking for them in new places. So, you know, for example, a French teacher doesn't have to come from France or Quebec. They could come from the Caribbean. Uh, they could come from West Africa. Um, you know, it just as an English teacher could come from, I think it's 50 some countries in the world. Um, so I think just thinking a little bit out of the box and, you know, it's going to be a gradual process. You know, you have attrition and then next time when you try and fill that position, you make sure that the slate that you're coming in with is a diverse pool. And I think, you know, I mean, realistically, yeah, I think it'll take a generation for this to change, but um, every little step helps. I mean, even if, you know, I, I just, you know, having that one teacher in your school that is a teacher of color that you somehow feel more of a connection with, that's all it takes for some kids, right? You don't need the entire faculty to look like you or even a third of it. I mean, I, I didn't go into this in my story, but you know, I, I ended up being a writer and the one teacher at my school who first recognized my writing abilities and encouraged me to, 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 to nurture them was an Asian teacher. And I wonder, you know, was it just a coincidence that the one Asian teacher I had recognized that talent in me? And or is it the fact that she told me that that somehow it had it resonated more than maybe advice from another teacher would have. I mean, I, I don't know, but I have heard from many other, you know, particularly black children who've been in schools where maybe there was only one black teacher, mm -hmm. just the power of having that one person in the school can be can be incredible and, and mm -hmm. just just so vital to to the students going to that school. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, this certainly like um yeah you you would argue maybe it's the most powerful thing the idea of representation of like who you are um the uh the last question i had is like i'm reading it back now and it's, it's quite a long-winded one so you'll have to forgive me um but in hong kong like my I, I mentioned before like my school's foundation faced allegations of um maybe allegations is, is, is too strong a word but um a failing to operate with greater tolerance or open-mindedness around different cultures from from the students themselves from the student body and it it emanated out of one school um within the foundation but then i think the conversation was obviously had uh, in, in every school and we've we've since been expected to partake in professional development and departmental reviews and all these things uh, in regards to the way in which diversity and equity is considered um so 
Um, I, I don't want to kind of undermine the efforts that have gone into it. I think uh, a significant amount of hours and people power have gone into the planning and the, 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 the conduct and all this kind of thing. Suffice to say, those conversations have been had, those kind of meetings or um, big group discussions have been had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, is this good enough? Um, is it good enough to kind of just get around as a staff body and discuss these things and think about um, how we do our jobs and how we might do it better? Or is hiring a more representative staff body the only way to truly bring about meaningful change? I think uh, I think um, something that is really important for educators to think about is uh, do they themselves put themselves in a situation where they are pushing their own comfort zones? And what I mean by that is, yes, you can have that in a series of professional development courses and all that. I don't mean to take away from those efforts. I think they are very important. But I think one concrete thing that every international school teacher could be doing and should be doing is in their lives when they are abroad, living in a country abroad, are they actually getting out of their bubbles and interacting and engaging with other educators from the country in which they live? Or are they staying in their own little expat school bubbles? And, uh, you know, I'm not going to generalize, but uh, I, I, from my conversations and from just my own experience in this world, I think there is a tendency, and this isn't just educators. I mean, I think this is expats in any sort of, a, 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 from any sort of profession have a tendency to create their their own little bubbles because of course that's what you're, you're kind of recreating home or where you feel comfortable or your own tribe I guess um, but I think as educators it's incredibly important that if your message to children is to learn to relate with people across cultural and socioeconomic boundaries and all the rest of it well the teachers have to be modeling that themselves in their own lives and how much do international school teachers really know about uh, what what the education system and what you know their counterparts in that country go through and and I think you know this is also particularly important because you know you are lifelong edu- educators and there are different ways of teaching students things and different approaches and I think it could only enrich your your jobs if you sort of go out and see how certain things are taught in another by another in another classroom by another teacher who's come through a different sort of path and you know, one of the examples that just really stays in my head is a international school teacher who was um, uh, you went to a position in Malawi and there, you know, the kids had been taught history from British textbooks that were teaching them all about something in a far off country called the UK. And they had like no local history taught to them. And so this teacher went out and basically helped um, helped create that history, as in like helped document the local history. So he created his history lessons uh, around the local river that had helped, you know, settlements uh, materialize in the past and, the, you know, sort of retraced the economic and trade development that had occurred. And, and that was just so much more relevant to the kids. And I think, you know, in how many other countries around the world are we missing opportunities to sort of tap the local knowledge of educators and bring that into our classrooms in, the inter- in international schools? So, you know, that's that's one 
one suggestion that does come to me. <laughs> Very good one, I have to say. Um, okay, well, yeah, the, the only thing that remains for me to say, Natalie, is uh, thank you very much, first of all, for um, the article um, um, that was that was released earlier this year. I think, as I said to you before we did, started uh, the interview, it's, it's, it's a piece that I know a lot of people uh, within my industry have read. Um, if not, everyone that I've kind of come into contact with in the last few weeks seems to have read it. Um, and uh, just, yeah, from a personal point of view, my, my partner and I kind of had, a, you know, quite a, a deep and meaningful conversation about it. It certainly kind of prompted a lot of those conversations within my small circle of, um, of, of contact. So I can only imagine that it's happening um, elsewhere as well. And also, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Um, today, just to kind of elaborate on on a few of it, it's it's a really it's a very thorny issue. That's the word I keep tending to use whenever we're talking about the idea of um, um, you know representation or diversity or kind of ethnicity and stuff like that. But I think um, making sure that there is multiple perspectives out there and representative voices out there, I think is is really really important. So thank you for all your work um, that you've done on it. Thank you so much. It's obviously an issue that's close to my heart, and that's the best feedback I can hear is that it's, you know, it's being read and, may, and is resonating with people and starting more conversations.